Hi, I'm Nikki from Teaching Autism and welcome to the Autism and Special Education Community Podcast. Are you an autism or special education professional? Are you a teacher or therapist looking for support and new ideas? You may even be a parent, family member or carer. This podcast is perfect to help you find out more information, support and get some of your questions answered. Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of our Teaching Autism and Special Education Community Podcast. I am so excited to bring you a guest today called Mackenzie Hoffman. Mackenzie is a feeding therapist with a passion for food and she wants to share that love with everyone. You can find her on Instagram at playing at your plate and without further ado I would love to start our podcast episode today all about feeding therapy. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Mackenzie, and welcome to Teaching Autism and Special Education Community. Would you mind telling me just a little bit about yourself and what you do for my audience? Yeah, absolutely. My name is Mackenzie, and I am a feeding therapist. I am also a speech pathologist. I work at a pediatric outpatient clinic that is associated with our children's hospital, I help babies learning to bottle, infants starting solids, and work with children of all ages and abilities working on their feeding. Wow, that sounds really interesting. I'm sure you are actually very busy with all of that because feeding is quite a difficult task for children of all abilities. Yeah, it can be pretty tricky, but also very rewarding and fun to teach parents and kind of help them out with um, those adventures as well. Definitely. I can imagine it's challenging, but very rewarding. And I had you on here today after seeing you on Instagram talking about feeding therapy. And I know that's something that a lot of my audience are going to be really interested to learn more about. So could you just give me a little overview about what feeding therapy is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, To me, feeding therapy is really just helping kids and their families learn to eat and have successful mealtimes. As a feeding therapist, I work really closely with the kids I serve, um, as well as their families and other providers to determine like their source of the feeding issue and to help them offer strategies to make changes so everyone can have a positive feeding experience. That's really, really interesting. I I love all things feeding anyway, just because I find the whole subject fascinating because everyone's so individual as well with their feeding and different struggles they may be facing. So I can imagine that you really have to get to know every child you sort of work with and able to offer that advice to them and their families. Yeah, it's really important to get a detailed case history and really kind of find out where the problem started. I feel like that's a big piece of it is trying to kind of dive into that child and figure out what happened maybe in the beginning, maybe with bottling, kind of what was the issue that started them not liking to eat or what is contributing to the issue and continuing to contribute to the issue. So I really like to dive into that and kind of give families a new perspective on kind of seeing where it started and how we can fix it. That's great that you really go far back and look into all those reasons why. I think that would be really helpful for people who are listening to maybe consider looking right back at the beginning rather than just focusing on the here and now. Yeah, because we learn how to love to eat when we're babies and when we have positive experiences, feeding on the breast or taking the bottle or starting those solids. And if there's some blockage in our throat or if we're aspirating or if we can't get a good latch on the bottle or 
um, the nipple, then we may develop negative experiences. Every time we got food, we had a bad reaction and we didn't like it and it didn't feel good in our tummies or whatever that might have been. And then that could cause us to actually not know how to eat or not to like to eat. So we don't get those positive experiences and love food like some of us do. We start early not liking food and being worried about it. So we really have to change those negative experiences to positive at an early age. I love that because I've never really thought about how those very early negative experiences could have an effect. But now you've said it, it makes so much sense about so many students I've come into contact with over the years. Right. That's awesome. And while we're on the subject, a lot of my audience wanted to know, who do you think feed-in therapy is for? Because a lot were thinking that maybe it's just for very young children. A lot were thinking it's for babies. But do you think it's something that anyone can access? I think it's something that definitely anyone can access. I mean, I start with babies and work with families there, but um, in the outpatient setting, I work with kids of all ages. I have kids on my caseload that are teenagers that have never developed that love for eating, and it just got worse and worse and worse. It kind of seems that the kiddos who have never liked food just have always been doing it for routine, always have been kind of harped on by their parents, had been asked to eat, and they've never really liked it. So I really like to get back into that and kind of find out why you don't like it and how we can fix it. Um, but a lot of problems contributing to low tone can cause it. If they um, don't have the muscle tone to chew successfully, that could re be related. Um, sensory processing concerns is a big one, especially for kids on the spectrum. Um, the food is too crunchy. It tastes too strong. They can't sit still. Um, they don't like the smell of it. They can't stand how it crunches and they can hear it vibrate through their head. Like that's too big of experiences for them. So they don't like it. And oftentimes those kids have big, big ideas of why they don't like the food. So they kind of really blow it out of proportion. Like I can't eat anything crunchy because it makes my ears hurt. So now I won't eat anything. So um, these kids are doing huge, huge setbacks and big reasons of why they don't like food. So I feel like um, it can be really for anyone, starting with babies, but all ages, definitely. That's fantastic. Like even working with teenagers as well just goes to show that this really is accessible for anyone who's sort of having any sort of issues around feeding. But would you say that early intervention is best? Like if people are able to sort of recognize that maybe their student in the classroom, maybe their child at home has a sort of issue around food, do you think that early intervention is really helpful? Or do you think any age can come in and you're just happy to work with them from there? I'm happy to work with anyone from where they're at. Early intervention is certainly better. Just seeing the teenagers that I work with, they have so many negative associations. We just have to go very much back to basics and explore new foods that they've never seen before and really get back to basics with them. But the younger kids, they do really well with play-based therapy. They love to play. They can easily change those negative associations to positive associations. So in my role right now, I do tons of early intervention. I start in the NICU with the kids that are going to be um, most susceptible to having a feeding disorder in the future. And I kind of train the families and start right there in the NICU from them leaving to try to help them avoid those experiences later on. 
That's great. And I think pretty much like anything, that early intervention is really key because, as you say, when they're teenagers, there's so much more for you to go back through and so much work to look through as well. But for anyone sort of listening, how would they access some sort of feed-in therapy? Um, feeding therapy is usually in most children's hospitals. I would say the hospital setting, especially if there's a NICU, there's going to be a feeding therapist. Um, pediatric outpatient clinics will often have it, especially those working with OT, speech and PT or different therapists, um, speech pathologists, as well as occupational therapists are the primary, um, providers that are doing feeding therapy. Speech is going to look a little bit more on the oral motor side of things, whereas OT is going to look more on the sensory side. Um, but being a speech therapist and working with OTs all the time um, and talking to OTs that do feeding therapy, I feel like there's a lot of carryover. To be a feeding therapist, you need to do more than just oral motor or just sensory. You need to have a collaborative approach. So I've taken OT trainings. I've taken courses that are OT and speech specific, just so I can definitely have a full look at the child and not just be looking at oral motor or sensory. I want to combine all of them to um, provide a good feeding therapy session. That's great that there's so much of a crossover and that everyone's sort of working together as well. Because I know you've mentioned the speech and language therapist, the occupational therapist, the physical therapist. So I do think that carries over to a lot of things that we sort of teach in life as well, where all of us have something to bring to the table. We can cross over, offer that advice. So do you think that if, you know, maybe a family are going into a hospital and they're feeling overwhelmed and they don't know who to speak to, do you think that having all those different therapists there really help the family understand from different perspectives about the different issues around food? Yeah, absolutely. I think that somebody needs to kind of take charge and kind of get them there. And it usually starts with the primary care doctor or physician. And you kind of, if you address some issues to them, they usually can refer you to a feeding specialist. But a lot of um, physicians aren't as familiar with feeding therapy. So sometimes you kind of have to advocate for that as a provider and as a parent um, to kind of let them know that that is a resource that they have, maybe not as accessible in their hospital specifically or in their community, but it is an option for everyone. But yes, always collaborating. I love working in a hospital setting because I can have access to more physicians and nutritionists and GI doctors and um, also can reach out to the schools and the occupational therapist there and the speech therapist there and um, other providers that are working with the child to give really a collaborative approach to feeding. Your job sounds really lovely, the role where you are able to help out so many children and young adults in so many places as well, and being able to have all those resources on hand in the hospital, helping families, liaising with schools, that must be very rewarding for you, and you must see a lot of different cases as well. Yeah, absolutely. I am constantly working with all different kiddos and have such different caseloads. I do a lot of um, babies transitioning to solids and um, children trying to transition off of NG or G-tube for failure to thrive. I see kids um, with different special needs and diagnoses. Um, I have also worked a lot with kids on the autism spectrum and trying to just change their mealtime experiences as well. Wow. So it's safe to say that every day is very different for you in your sort of job role. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. 
every now, kid is very different. So <laughs> keeps me busy and entertained. So I can imagine it must be so rewarding to have all those children and young adults coming to you. But obviously, like we say, every child is different. Does that mean that you have a lot of different approaches to feed and therapy that you use? Um, I do. I have been to multiple trainings and I like to use a combination of a lot of different approaches. Um, I know some of you were interested on like the different therapy approaches. I would say the most popular therapy approach to feeding is a play-based approach. Um, the most popular one being the sequential oral sensory approach to feeding or the SOS approach. Um, that is probably the one that you will run into if you just research feeding therapy or see what kind of approaches there are. Um, it was created by a psychologist. She uses psychology, psychology principles to kind of slowly desensitize the child to foods, um, but also uses a lot of good sensory aspects of feeding. Um, so going slowly based on the food. So if it's a food that is white and crunchy, we will also introduce another food that is also white and crunchy so the child can make small sensory changes to the foods. Um, and you're kind of desensitizing them to those foods while playing with them and while exploring them. So the approach works really nicely with a lot of different kiddos. Um, on the opposite end of the, of the spectrum, there is like a behavioral approach. I feel like behavioral approach can be helpful for certain kids. It um, is a little bit older approach, in my opinion, um, just because it's very different than the play-based approach. It does have more research because it has been around a little bit longer, um, but it has a lot of like positive and negative reinforcement um, and sometimes requires like an inpatient stay. It is also very different from a play-based approach, so they're often not used together. However, um, I think that there are certain kids, especially in the autism community, that would benefit from a little bit of a mixture of both just because um, behavioral approaches are so well researched in the autism community. I feel like using a little bit of a behavioral approach is okay with me sometimes when treating certain populations, but mostly I am play-based. I would say overall, I am just really interested in helping everyone love to eat. Um, I like to say that I help everyone learn to love to eat foods because I love to eat foods and a lot of my kids that I work with don't, and my main goal is to get them to love some food in some way so they can have some positive mealtime experiences. I love that. I love the vision you have with the clients you work with as well. And it was really interesting to hear how you have those two opposite sides of therapy, which can, though, work together sometimes for some of our students. Because I know we have often used little pieces of different curriculums and different therapies because you very much sort of pick and choose little bits that you think will work for individual students because everyone sort of reacts to sort of different things and they like a little bit of play. They like a little bit more structure. So being able to mix those, I think, will be really helpful too. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. I think that a combination approach and kind of meeting the family and the child where they're at is um, the best option. Definitely. And with play, I find that play sort of takes off the pressure from families as well. And they're more willing to do some of that work at home if you're able to ask them to do things rather than calling it something so serious. Play just makes everything seem more relaxed and easy to go through. Yes. As a speech pathologist, I love play. Play-based skills are important um, developmentally. Um, I also love using language to describe foods. I like to talk about what 
the facts about a food are because so many of my kids are very focused on opinions and have a lot of negative opinions on the food, such as they smell bad or they're disgusting or they're yucky or whatever. Um, I like to focus on facts and describe the foods using language. So it's orange, it's wet, it's citrusy. I mean, giving them real concrete facts versus opinions can be very helpful too from a developmental speech standpoint as well as a feed. I love that, especially the fact that you talked about opinions and how we can all have very strong opinions on food, but the facts are where we should really be focusing. And I love how you do focus on that as well. Yeah. So going off the back of all that information, for people who are maybe sitting on the fence and unsure about feeding therapy, what would you say are the main benefits of putting someone through this feeding therapy? Um, we're going to target a lot of different things. We're going to, I didn't talk a lot about this, but we're going to talk about oral motor skill development. We're going to make it easier for them to chew foods so they can manage the foods. Um, we're going to help them sit at the table for meals. We're going to help the parents and other caregivers understand why some of these problems are occurring and how to fix them. We're going to work on developing positive experience with foods and meals. So the child is wanting to sit at the table, wanting to engage with the food, wanting to learn about it. We're going to describe foods. We're going to help with weight gain. We're going to help transition off of tube feeds um, and really just working to see if we can solve some of the underlying problems and address those as well. There are so many great benefits and they cover so many different areas as well. And one that you touched on was one that I've actually had asked by my audience a few times, and that was about developing chewing and how can we help our students and children develop chewing skills? Yeah, um, I really like to use stick shaped foods to chew. Um, when we put something that is a stick shape in our mouth, such as like a chewy tube or a veggie straw or something that's going to be the size of about your finger, I would say, your tongue is automatically going to go to the side to track that food. And you are going to be able to hold on to it while placing it on your back teeth to chew. So what we want to do when we take a bite of a food is to bite it lateralize it to our teeth and chew it up. So I find that stick-shaped work, foods work best for that. For kids that are having any sensory processing issues, I feel like crunchy, hard foods are best or foods with a lot of flavor um, because a lot of my kiddos don't have the sensory response to feel and track certain foods if it's very bland or something like that. So a Big flavor, big texture, stick-shaped food is going to be the best to work on chewing, and then that can help with jaw strength. Those are really great, and it was really interesting when you talked about those stick-like foods, and I was sort of picturing myself eating them, and everything you said was so right. It's something you wouldn't even think about, and then as you say it, I was like, oh yeah, I totally <laughs> get that now. <laughs> right, yeah, it just kind of makes sense, and it's fun to watch kids do it and kind of just think about how you chew foods. You take a bite of food you send it over to your teeth to be chewed and you chew it up. And a lot of kids are putting things in midline and kind of sucking and mashing them because they don't have the oral motor skill tool or because it's a little bit harder for them. So they um, decide to do that. A lot of my kids will just eat very chewy soft foods. Um, those are very popular kid foods. So not always just for kid foods. It's a lot of oral motor skill too. And can they manage the harder to chew foods or not? 
And a lot of my kids on the spectrum need a chewier food and they need bigger flavors and they need to be able to chew to kind of work that jaw and get that proprioceptive input they need. So I feel like it's very important to address that and make a plan for that because foods can actually be very regulating and can help um, address some of those needs as well. Definitely. And I feel like it's one of those skills that people may not think about properly until they come and see someone like yourself and a therapist and really talk to them and explain about those skills. Something that maybe a lot of us, I know me, for example, would maybe take for granted in years gone past when we're thinking about food and our students struggles with it. Absolutely. I have a lot of parents come in with kids that are having some sensory processing concerns, but are otherwise pretty high functioning. Um, They're breaking down at some school lunches or certain things. And I've had a lot of parents start crying and say, I didn't understand. I thought it was a behavior. I thought they were always really picky. I didn't understand that they felt the food that way, or I didn't understand that they were having a complete meltdown just to look at it. So I feel like the education is really important and really helpful for parents to just be able to see in a different light, because it's not something that a lot of people think about. Definitely. And it's so great that you're able to help those parents and family members really understand the reasonings behind it as well. And I know that a lot of our parents sometimes feel like maybe it's their fault or maybe something they've done that's stopping it. But you've really been able to go back to those skills and really talk about them. I'm sure that must be a huge relief for so many. Yeah, absolutely. It's nice. We kind of talk about it. We give them some ideas. A lot of it is simply cooking in your kitchen and learning about the foods and looking up a fun recipe to try to make and just trying to transfer some of that negative energy that you've been having maybe at your meal times and in the kitchen and change that to something positive and productive. Yeah, and so easy to cook as well, whether it's at home or school, there's so many fun activities you can do with it. Absolutely. And all over the internet, there's so many fun ways to present foods and how to make them exciting or color a picture and add food to it. I mean, it's very simple things that you just have to put in your mind and, oh, I'm going to try this today. So, yeah. And I know you have a lot of great ideas you share on your Instagram as well. Yeah, absolutely. I try to inspire people as much as I can. And I'm very inspired by other people that I follow also. So it is a big goal of mine to share that inspiration because sometimes I just have to be scrolling through Instagram and something pops up and I say, I'm going to make that with my kids today. Um, I kind of started the Instagram account because my son, who is now four, was quite picky actually. And I noticed that kids just are picky by default unless you work on it. And I really, I mean, my whole job is helping everybody love to eat. And he was picky. And I realized that I hadn't really been addressing it at home. I address it with the kids that I work with so much. I just didn't really think about it. Um, But it only took probably six to eight months of me doing the same things that I do in therapy at home. And now he is a great eater. So I kind of share some of those stories and how I'm helping my two-year-old to avoid that as well um, on the Instagram account. So I always have fun ideas and what we're trying in the kitchen that day and what I did in therapy and just a lot of inspiration just to hope to kind of inspire somebody that day of, oh, I could do that. That's easy enough for me to try. Yes, definitely. Just taking that pressure off. And it's really wonderful that you have that personal connection with it as well. And your Instagram is at playing at your plate, isn't it? Yeah, Brilliant. And I will link that in the show notes as well for people to find you. Carrying awesome. on Thank from 
you're welcome. Sort of carrying on from that sort of discussion we were having about all those skills, one that came up often was swallow studies. And a lot of people were wondering what a swallow study is and how often should a child have one? Um, so a swallow study really is something that needs to be determined by um, a physician. If you are concerned of aspiration, you should definitely encourage families to go see their physician and talk to them about it. Um, aspiration looks like a child that probably in the school setting, I would say a child that is always sick, always congested, just sounds a little off. I mean, it's going to be clearly rattly in their lungs quite constantly. Um, when they're taking drinks, are they not able to pace themselves? Are they sucking it down very quickly and coughing? Are their eyes watering? Um, and those kind of things would be great to address with the parent or possibly follow up with a physician if you have a release of information in any way or can educate the family to go see a physician. Um, I do have kiddos that come in that are five or six that have been aspirating their whole life and just never really realized that that was the underlying cause. If they send them in for a swallow study, they can do a video fluoroscopic swallow study. And that is usually done at a hospital, um, a speech pathologist. They put barium in the food so you can see them swallow and they will go to a radiologist and be seated and have to swallow some liquids and chew some foods and see what they are safe on. And that could change their diet or they could provide them with some strategies to make swallowing safer. One of the easiest strategies is kind of taking smaller sips or looking down or kind of taking sips from an open cup, which is a little bit more controlled than a straw or a sippy cup. But those are kind of the things to look for and kind of what that will entail that you can explain to families. That was really helpful. Thank you. Because I've never come across, I've never had a student who needed a swallow study. So that was a question that really piqued my interest as well when people were asking. And all that information you shared, I can just imagine so many people now making notes and having that information. <laughs> it's, it's so handy to have just that little bit of information that could really have a huge effect on a student who maybe, like you say, that's gone missed for a few years. If people are a little bit more aware of just even potential signs that could really help to speed things up as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's good to advocate and some families just don't understand how it happened or they don't go to the doctor as much or I mean at school you guys see them eating way more than a lot of other people see them. It's hard to make that call by a 10-minute doctor's appointment. So, absolutely. Yeah, and I think it's really great when all of us at schools can really communicate with families and have that relationship as well. And sort of talking about schools, I know that lunchtime, like you say, we do see our students eat a lot. Lunchtime can be really difficult for so many of our students and especially even just sitting at a table. So many students just they don't have the skills yet. They just aren't able to sit there. Do you have any sort of advice or recommendations for what either school staff or even parents at home can do to help their children sit at the table? Yeah, absolutely. I think that feeding is like the biggest sensory experience we encounter in a day. And I think oftentimes at home and at school during those meal times are really big. I get a lot of referrals for kiddos that are doing okay in comfortable settings, but the school cafeteria is a big set off for them. 
there's a lot of sounds, there's a lot of stimulation going on, there's big smells, there's a lot of different foods going on and mixing together. It can be very hard and challenging. So some of the strategies I like to give families are doing like a sensory activity before and after. So something that's offering some good proprioceptive input, some deep pressure, something that can be very calming or set them up so they're kind of a a regulated baseline when they walk into the cafeteria and then maybe some strategies to kind of keep them there while they get overwhelmed by everything. Maybe some headphones. I love to do a straw in the lunchbox for maybe blowing bubbles in a glass of water or in their milk. I usually have them close it so they don't get in trouble for making a mess, but those (laughs) deep breaths can be very calming. Um, Bringing a chewy tube with them or having crunchy snacks, chewy snacks can be very regulating and calming. A wiggle seat, um, a folder that they can put up so they don't have to look at other people's foods. Um, I also do some visuals um, for certain kids, like you're going to eat this first and then this and then this, so you kind of keep them on task. Um, I'll also do a lot of practice lunches at home or maybe in therapy before they head to the lunchroom so they know how to get out their food so they know how to get it open so they know what they're going to eat and how it's going to taste or they've already explored some of those things so you can almost have a practice lunch at home maybe for dinner the night before and then they bring it to school so they don't feel as overwhelmed Um, because a lot of the things that are happening is that that child is getting so dysregulated in the lunchroom that they're completely shutting down and they're in fight or flight mode and then they're not feeling hungry and they don't want to eat anything and then once they come off the high of that they're suddenly starving when the second their family picks them up from school and they were maybe in that state the rest of the day and never got to learn anything the rest of the day. So I want to encourage everyone to be kind of aware of that and see what you might be able to do before and after the lunchtime experience to kind of help that child regulate a little bit better. And that may include doing some sort of sensory calming thing after the meals, or maybe in between they take a little break or they get up and use the bathroom and come back in the middle of the meal just to kind of help them regulate that good state where they can actually eat or get a task done. So they have the energy to learn for the rest of the day. Well, there was so much great information there. And I know you'll have shared something that you can try with pretty much every student. Like there's not just one thing to try. There's so many different approaches that we can take for lunchtime, both in school and at home. And I love that idea of the practice lunch and really helping them to get used to the idea of lunch and how to sort of act at lunch and get their food out. All those steps broken down. I can see that making a huge difference for something that maybe we take for granted, just expecting them to know without practicing it. Yes. Yeah. It can be very helpful and just a good perspective taking of, oh, I never thought about it like that, or, oh, that's pretty easy. And it does work really nicely if you can work with the occupational therapist at school to kind of see what some of those sensory triggers are outside of the lunchroom. So asking them when they're in the fight or flight mode is not going to be helpful, but addressing it before with an occupational therapist and deciding that actually looking at the foods is definitely my trigger or the noise is the trigger or the smell of so-and-so's lunch is the trigger or standing in line with all the other kids is the trigger. So really pinpointing what the main trigger is and trying to work to fix that. That's great. And especially having someone maybe come in and look in from the outside, sometimes that's really helpful because like you say, sometimes when our students in that fight or flight mode, we kind of 
get in the moment with them as well and we're not really taking a step back to look around us because we just want to help them and fix it and we want to do all the things for them and then that's not giving us the chance to sort of figure out maybe what was the reason why but having maybe an occupational therapist come in and look from the outside in that can be really helpful absolutely So I am so thankful for all the information you have shared today. It's been amazing to learn more about not just feeding therapy, but as all issues with feeding as an overall. If there was one thing you wanted anyone to take away today about feeding therapy, what would that be for you? I think my main takeaway would be to think about why that child's experience with food is negative and how you can make it positive. Because Generally, that's the core of everything is why don't they like it and how can we fix that? Because we, most of us, I would say, love to eat and love food and it's a positive social experience for us and it should be for everyone. So what's the breakdown? What's causing that? And how can you make it better, even if it's just with one food in one scenario? Because those are going to go a long way with the kiddo. Definitely. And I just love how you have such a passion for really making everyone really enjoy food and make it such a positive experience. Yes, that is definitely a goal of mine. And it's it saddens me to see people that don't love to eat because I love it so much. Um, and it's usually pretty quick and it's fun to even have a kid come into a room where they would have thrown up at the smell of their mom cooking something and they can at least identify it smells good in here, mom. What are you making? Even if they're not going to eat it, that makes me feel good. I've had a couple kids that have had that experience and I, I know they're kind of like, well, they're still not eating it, but I'm kind of thinking, wow, look at how far they've come though. Look at the difference there. So I love seeing those positive changes and just know that they do take a while and it can be small, but they will come. And especially when they're young, you have plenty of time to develop those. Definitely. And I've always said that those smaller steps can lead to the biggest achievements. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. So I know that we said we could find you on your Instagram, which is playing at your plate. Is there anywhere else that we can find you to learn more about feed and therapy and the information that you share? I am happy to answer any questions. I usually do most of my stuff through Instagram just because I am a busy mom and I work full time as well. Um, But I am happy to answer any questions, especially if you are having trouble finding feeding therapy, feel free to send me a message and I can try to get you hooked up to someone in your area. I know people listen from all over. So if you are having any trouble finding feeding therapy or need some resources, I definitely have some online resources or um, different people that you can contact to get feeding therapy from anywhere or online if that is something you're interested in. Brilliant. I know that'll be really helpful for so many listeners today. And I'll link to your Instagram as well, just so people have that straightforward link. But that was just such a helpful episode. I'm really thankful for your time, Mackenzie. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I love talking about feeding therapy and helping educate others. So I appreciate the opportunity. Wow. That podcast episode today about feeding therapy was amazing. I know it's really opened my eyes to so many different things that maybe I hadn't thought of before. Thank you so much, Mackenzie, for coming on. If you listen to this, don't forget to head on over to the show notes. You can find the links and where you can follow Mackenzie. Thank you for listening and I'll speak to you again soon.